<laughs> All right, guys. Sorry for the delay. Hopefully, you had a chance to eat some breakfast. Um, so this is why I don't work a lot of 7 a.m. shifts because I was in my car drinking my coffee at 5:45 this morning, and it just takes forever to get here. So, anyways, I apologize for being late. Um, for the new people, so we started this last year. It's the written board <laughs> review series, and so once a month, depending on what your lecture topic is or what your um, topic is for the month, I'll give a lecture where we just go over some practice questions together. And it's, you know, no pressure. We just go around the room, answer questions, discuss the answers. I try to make them relevant uh, to stuff that's, you know, hot topics that you need to know for boards and also stuff that's kind of interesting to talk about with some current data. But remember that board questions are not like, it's not like journal club. It's not cutting edge stuff. You have to remember that the questions are, tend to be a little bit behind the time. So just when you're answering questions, keep that in mind a little bit sometimes. So the series used to be in green, but due to the royal baby being a boy, we are now going with a blue-themed background, all right? Yay. All right. So, uh, yes, exactly. Um, to be named at a later date. Maybe they could follow some of the inner city conventions and just have the baby named Nameless. We could. Excellent, excellent. Or just king, you know? I mean, like, wouldn't that be, you know, like, I just can't really see, like, a King Banana, or what are some of these celebrity names? Apples and Cocos and I don't know. Anyways, okay. So um, for these questions, for the interns, I do not do any of the peer questions because I am expecting you guys to do those on your own. So none of the questions that we do here come from the peer series, so you should do those on your own. Make sure that you keep reading journals, textbooks, review books. Um, and why do we do this? Because we want everyone to try to score as high as Dr. Reed did last year. <laughs> All right, so these are some of the review books. Um, sorry for the fuzzy thing, fuzzy pictures, but Rivers, the written board review exam on the bottom is probably one of the most popular. Um, and then I have all the rest in my office, so if you ever want to grab one and do questions or have a review book to take a peek at, those are all in my office. Um, I was getting this lecture together, and one of the things that I wanted to make sure you guys had read, since we all get 7 million emails, I don't know, did Dr. Fox send this to the residents too, this update? So I was very taken back by number four, this is his number four that he pointed out, um, which says, in a woman with a pregnancy of unknown location, meaning positive pregnancy test, but you can't see anything inside the uterus on your ultrasound whose HCG is less than 3,000, interventions such as methotrexate or DNC should not be undertaken in order to avoid the risk of interrupting a viable intrauterine pregnancy. And it was kind of timely that he sent this out just because my husband is on the, um, at Riverside Community, he's on the review board for like hospital cases that get brought, about, uh, brought against the hospital. And the case that he had been reviewing that week was exactly this. It was methotrexate given to a woman who didn't have a live IUP, whose beta was like 2,000, and she is suing because then she came back and she had to go and get a DNC because she ended up having a viable intrauterine pregnancy and then had been given multiple doses of methotrexate, so they had to abort the pregnancy. Um, but traditionally, we had learned, right, between 12 and 1500, intravaginal ultrasound, you should expect to see something, right? If your beta HCG is 12 to 1500, you would expect to see 
something in the uterus if there is a viable pregnancy. Um, and this is clearly telling us that we were maybe a little bit too ambitious with our betas. So they say if it's less than 3,000, you should bring them back and check it. Um, you should not treat with methotrexate, assuming that it's an ectopic. So this is, for me, I don't know, this was certainly sort of an update for me and something I wanted to make sure that I brought to your attention because I know in the ED recently I've had all sorts of OB consults with give this, give me so, or give this, and I just want you guys to make sure that you're as up-to-date as you can be. So, anyhow, um, I thought that was just a timely update from Dr. Fox. So, okay, so let's go with question one. Yeah, I'm I just had a question that mm -hmm. could, be, could sound stupid, but is, is, does OB follow these guidelines too? I mean, if we consult them and they tell us something differently, is there... I would. I expect them I would hope so because this is an update that came from um, us, you know, a panel of experts that certainly included leaders from their their specialty as well, and so um, you can always reference. You know, if you get a consult that says something different, you can always reference this and discuss it, uh, and you can always, you know, get your attending involved, their attending involved. But this was a change to the way I had practiced before, so. Um, you know, those those kind of discussions might come up. Yeah. When I've called them on a couple of these middle of the road ones, they're pretty conservative, especially if it's a desired pregnancy. Yeah. They just follow them up two days later, and two days later, and two days later, and give them really good return progression. Which is, that, which which is, is nice. It's one of the few specialties where when we actually send people out of the emergency department, I feel confident that they're going to be seen in the clinic. Unlike, you know, I send out like some, you know, trimalleolar fracture in ortho and it's like you may or may not get seen in their clinic um but anyways i do think <laughs> gain's pretty good about it so that's a positive um let's have one of our new interns take question one do we have any takers go ahead yeah candace <clears throat> Good guess. C is the right one. So ovarian cancer uh, doesn't tend to cause bleeding. It all seems it's sort of nondescript. Um, they come in with abdominal pain or ascites. It's usually diagnosed late because the symptoms are um, often um, confused with other things. Um, risk, risk, as you know, family history of ovarian breast or colon cancer, infertility. Um, CA-125, uh, a lot of times the OB-GYN folks, they'll ask you to send that. It's not that helpful to us in the emergency department when we're just diagnosing stuff, but it is very useful in their world where they monitor the response to treatment. And this is just a CT scan that shows a big mass in the abdomen there. Uh, it's a ovarian cancer, and you can see the um, ascites around the outside of the liver there, and then metastatic lesions already um, throughout the peritoneum. So usually diagnosed late. One in 70 women, peak age is 55 to 65. So one, of the, one of the only times I got into <clears throat> medical legal trouble years ago was a 45-year-old lady came in with new onset ascites. She was also an alcoholic with cirrhosis, mm -hmm. and we did not tap her new onset ascites in the ED. Um, we presumed it was from her alcoholism. I don't know whether she had LFTs that were bumped in bed. Anyway, she we went to her primary care doctor who also treated her with aldactone and and for her alcoholic ascites for four months, didn't tap her, and she had ovarian cancer and died when a 12 year old. So oh. I don't know if it would have changed anything, um, but uh, tapping new onset ascites in the ED should be routine, 
even if you think that it's probably alcoholic cirrhosis or such, you should make a diagnosis when you have these patients under your Obviously, that uh, case is um, a little tricky because the alcoholism cirrhosis certainly muddled that picture up. Uh, some of the review books go so far as to say a woman with new onset ascites is ovarian cancer until proven otherwise. So um, obviously something to keep in mind when we're looking at olives because we see quite a bit of ascites in the emergency department, right? Yes, my favorite thing to have you guys tap. Just love that <laughs> procedure. These guys, when you do the pair, isn't there like a potential for seeding? Well, there's a potential uh, higher risk of complication when you tap malignant ascites because of adhesions and stuff, you know, bowel is stuck to the wall. And so um, some people will tell you that it should be, you should be cautious of tapping malignant ascites in the emergency department. Um, but I think in today's day and age, if you can get a clear ultrasound and you have a good window to go into where you can do your tap, I would say that... Um, it would be safe to proceed in most cases. So, and if you're ever concerned, you can always get your consults, your consultants involved in interventional radiology every once in a while. I'll call them and they'll throw me a bone and do you know a procedure for us um, from the emergency department. So, something to consider. But yes, increased complications with ascites. As far as seeding the peritoneum, you've already got malignant cells floating around in the fluid that you're tapping. So, I can't imagine that it would make something much much worse. I don't know, if, even if, if you did the, the tap, if it would be uh, you know, diagnostic of ovarian cancer, it would probably be, you know, transudative, right? And then just <coughs> suggest that it's due to, like, a certain, certain bunch of different causes, right? So I don't, I don't, I think, I, I usually admit people on the other side, which would be, which would be fine. Yeah. Um, just important to remember. Yeah, no, and, and that's true. Well, I just said, if, you know, even if there's like uh, you want to decide in order to tap it, it, it wouldn't really give you the diagnosis of ovarian cancer, right? It just it just suggests that it could be caused by a bunch of different things. No, so you should be ordering the cytology on the new set of nuanced I don't, I don't yeah, usually do that, but I think, I think anyways, I'm just saying I usually admit nuanced ascites just because they can they can do the workup that we can't necessarily always complete. Which is understandable. Obviously, the cytology, we can order it, but it's not going to come back and help us in a timely fashion from the emergency department. So. And if you do send the cytology, you have to send, like, one of the whole big containers, you know. Oh, you, there's not, you can't send it to actually the whole No, yeah, it has to be a lot of fluid, large volume for cytology. So just remember that. And it's a different paperwork. It's a, one of the paper forms you have to fill out for the for path. Okay. Good to know. Thank you. Let's uh, have someone do question two. Lisa, do you want to do question two? Which of the following <clears throat> statements regarding the diagnosis and management of vaginal bleeding is true? A, all patients presenting to the ED with vaginal bleeding who are not pregnant can be referred to clinic without further ED evaluation. Um, I don't think that's true. I'd probably want to get an H&H &H and make sure they're not crazy anemic. Um, B, blood clots are abnormal in vaginal bleeding. C, patients with vaginal bleeding who are hemodynamically unstable are resuscitated according to standard practice. The ultrasound has no role in the evaluation of non-pregnant patients with vaginal bleeding. So I've definitely ordered ultrasounds on patients who weren't pregnant and had vaginal bleeding. Um, which of the following statements is true? So I'm going to say C. If they are unstable, we should definitely resuscitate them appropriately. That is an excellent answer. Yes, it is. 
It is C. I've had, I, here I've had like maybe two cases of really, really bad vaginal bleeding. Karen, was one of them yours that we were packing in one of the resuscitation bays and sending up to Gein? Yeah. Um, <laughs> that All right, so it's not that common that you get a really, really bad veg bleeder, but it does happen. In Karen's patient's case, I think she was at some sort of a clinic and had a procedure done, and they called and said, oops, we're having problems, we're sending her to you. And she came to the ER and she was like, hypotensive and looked gray and had packing in her vagina already and we called Gyne and they whisked her away to the operating room. So it does happen and you should just treat them as you would any other patient that's bleeding. You can pack a bunch of um, like surgical towels or whatever to try to tampon out the bleeding in the uterus, but really just get the blood going, call your consult and they're ultimately they're going to end up headed to the operating room most likely. So just something to keep in mind. <clears throat> Instead of like, is there anything else <coughs> In that case, we couldn't even see where the bleeding was coming from because there was just too much happening. I suppose if you could, you know, if they'd had a procedure and you could see like a laceration on the cervix or something, something you could try to use Surgicel or gel foam, you could, you could try it. But I think for our case, the safest thing is just try to pack it, get, um, you know, uh, resuscitate them and call uh, OB or Gyne and have them take a look. All right. Question three one. Okay, we have a forty nine year old female presenting to ED with complaints of right flank pain and She had an abdominal hysterectomy five days prior to presentation. She has no dysuria hematuria, which of the following tests would be least helpful. <coughs> a CT of the abdomen, pelvis without contrast, an intravenous polygram, uh, a renal function test, urinalysis. <coughs> so I'm going to go with B. Good guess. That's what I considered because I, has anyone, have you ever ordered an intravenous pilogram from the emergency department? I have never. Urology likes it. Okay. I have never ordered an IV pilogram from the emergency department. So I kind of looked at that answer. The Anyone have another guess? Yes, it is. It is. She's got a ureter. Yes, she has, exactly. So she has a ureteral injury is what they're trying to point you towards, and you need to do it with contrast in order to diagnose the CT with contrast to diagnose the ureteral injury. So very common complication in um, uh, gynecologic surgeries of any type, like 2 to 3% of GU surgery or gyne surgeries are complicated by a ureteral injury, and 75% of those are from hysterect hysterectomy. So uh, just a common injury, something you need to be aware of. Other things that can happen with hysterectomy, just like with any surgery, you can get infection, um, venous thromboembolism, bleeding, GU um, injuries, ureteral injury is probably the most common, bladder injury, you can get vaginal cuff dehiscence, and then less frequently you can actually injure the bowel. So just something to keep in mind when you see questions related to post-op complications in hysterectomy. Remember the ureters. Uh, when, when, uh tongue-in-cheek uh, joke. So two urologists are talking about the scope of practice for gynecologists, the surgical scope of practice, and one says to the other one, what are the three operations that a gynecologist performs? And the other one says a hysterectomy is the first one, and the second one is tying off the left ureter, and the third one is tying off the right ureter. <laughs> <laughs> so that's a way to remember ureteral injury. <laughs> Pass it on to my consultants next time. <laughs> <laughs> Let's keep that among us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not to share. <laughs>
We didn't do it. Um, <laughs> all right, Max, you want to take question four? <clears throat> Thirty-year-old female type two diabetes presents the EU complaint of nausea, vomiting, polydipsia, and polyuria. Despite taking her oral hypoglycemic agents, her glucose checks at home have been greater than two fifty. Her screening urine test has been HCG positive. What is the most appropriate next step management? A IV fluid double dose of oral hypoglycemia and patient follow up OB. Give oral fluid challenge. Check electrolytes and glucose and patient follow up OB. I guess they, okay, you have to follow us, so I guess we're not going to argue about that. I will give my You like C? Yeah. Well, that's good. So that's the right answer. Okay. <laughs> all right. All right. So this is a whole bunch of verbiage, and all they want you to pick out is that C is the only one that tells them to stop their um, oral hypoglycemic agents. So um, typically in diabetics, we use insulin to control glucose during pregnancy because some of the oral hypoglycemics have been associated with bad things for the fetus. That seems to be shifting a little bit. But for the questions, I would still go with stop the oral hypoglycemic agent. But there's been a bunch of studies in women who have PCOS and they're all on metformin. So they found that there's really no teratogenic effects on uh, metformin. And they've also looked at gliburide as well. So gliburide and gliposide, they cause um, uh, fetal hypoglycemia towards the end of pregnancy. But they're noticing that women who took it earlier in pregnancy, they actually seem to be doing okay. So that seems to be maybe something that might change in the future, but for the questions, I would still say the correct answer is stop the hypoglycemic agent. And those decisions on what to use for the pregnancy should be made in concert with their OBGYN. <clears throat> Anyhow, so that was just kind of an interesting little tidbit. I wouldn't because I don't know anything about dosing insulin. I, it's just not something I ever start. So I would either make a phone call with the OB doctor or in our institution, Dr. Langdorf and I were just looking at reasons to send pregnant women upstairs. And any pregnant woman who has elevated blood glucose is a reason to send them up to OB triage so that they can be seen by um, OB-GYN and have them address those issues. So. When I saw my OB mom, we admitted most of these. Like, if okay. we saw them in clinic and their blood sugar was greater than 250, they just admitted them. Okay. And took care of it there and then figured out the insulin and sent them home. Which is reasonable in our place where we tend to have a little bit of an easier time getting patients into the hospital. I think it can be managed as an outpatient with close follow-up with the gynecologist. The is that the patient has to know how to give themselves an insulin injection and that teaching is not available many of the hours of these patients. And so it's, I mean, if you had somebody who used insulin before and back on it, maybe, if you had somebody who was, you know, used to giving her mother her insulin injections and then she became diabetic and needed insulin, then maybe, but it has to be basically somebody who's comfortable giving themselves shots or can be trained that way, and uh, Johnny on the spot, diabetic teaching nurse is uncommon. Question five. Previously, how to turn seven-year-olds? Same thing with Lovenox, you know, you <laughs> send somebody home, 
if you could pull it all together, but they got to yeah. know how to give themselves a shot. Yeah. It's a good guess. Your reasoning, when you were talking through it, your reasoning is correct. She's 16 weeks, and they want you to consider preeclampsia after 20 weeks. So they're saying she's a little early for the preeclampsia diagnosis. And implantation bleeding is incorrect as well because, like you said, she's, uh, it's too far beyond that point for it to be implantation bleeding. So between B and C, do you have a guess? I expect the hyperemesis more than the first trimester, so it seems like a late presentation. It's probably more than It is. C is the right answer. I was going to say, just like from a question, question taking point of view, there's like not enough information to diagnose preeclampsia, just with like one blood pressure measurement. And you don't have any evidence like the UA or the writing, so. And they want you to think that all ectopic pregnancies would have abdominal pain. So that's the way questions are written. Uh, that's why they ruled out ectopic, because she doesn't have any pain. And so that leaves C, which is molar pregnancy. So a little bit about gestational trophoblastic disease. Um, it's a class of tumors uh, formed <laughs> from the abnormal trophoblastic or placental cells. Usually it is, um, you can get like, painless vaginal bleeding in the fourth or fifth month of pregnancy. You can have an abnormally high beta-HCG, so the beta-HCGs are just like off the charts. Um, they can have persistent hyperemesis. Yeah. Um, they can have persistent nausea and vomiting. They can actually have early preeclampsia, but again, they want you to consider preeclampsia more uh, around the 20-week mark or in the third trimester um, in general. Um, and then the uterus is larger than what you would expect. So, you know, um, like when you're, usually the uterus doesn't come up out of the pelvis past the pubic symphysis until like 20 weeks. And so if you're feeling this big boggy uterus and they're earlier than that, you should, um, that would be abnormally large uterus. Um, so complications of a trophoblastic disease is they can actually have an invasive mole. So even after you do a DNC and clear out the pregnancy, it had invaded into the myometrium, and so the beta-HCG stays elevated. Um, or it can have a malignant potential and metastasize, actually. And you can, there's two forms. You can get a complete mole or a partial mole. Complete is where you have basically um, one or two sperm that fertilize an empty egg. Um, and the complete is the, they describe it as like a snowstorm or a cluster of grapes. There's no fetal tissue at all because you really only have paternal uh, DNA. And then the partial is where two sperm actually fertilize a normal egg and you can get some normal fetal or embryonic tissue in a partial mole. So on ultrasound, wow, these didn't come out that great, sorry. Um, so this is a cluster of grapes. This is a molar pregnancy. Um, they also call it a snowstorm ultrasound. And then uh, less commonly, you can see on ultrasound, 
a partial molar pregnancy. This is the diagnosis is usually by looking at the um, um, the products of conception that you send down to the lab after you do your DNC. But if you're lucky enough to have an ultrasound where you can see an abnormal placenta, which is the dark uh, black arrow, where you get this kind of cluster of grapes looking thing, but you also have a um, an abnormally developed um, embryo at the at the big white arrow, and the smaller one is a gestational sac that's uh, 11 millimeters. So, yolk sac. Yolk sac. Thank you. <coughs> a yolk sac. So this kind of shows you have components of both. So this would be early. This would be in what eight weeks or so. Mm-hmm. Yes. I've definitely never seen an ultrasound like this. I have seen a, a molar pregnancy ultrasound before, um, but this I have not seen. Question six, Rod. A 44-year-old female presents to you who complained about white nipple discharge as a present for a week. She thought the symptoms were resolved. She has no pain or form of masses. Her neurologic exam is normal. Her urinary is tested negative, which the following statements is true. Decreased cortisol levels cause galactivia. Decreased prolactin levels can cause galactivia. Patient requires medical care provider. Medication requires medical care. For the med students. Huh? For the med students. Oh, thank you. Might require neurosurgery evaluation, but I don't know right now. She probably could be looked up by a primary care provider, but that might not be the best answer. Uh, increased prolactin levels probably cause bacteria. And I don't know if decreased cortisol levels can cause bacteria, but this will go with that one since the other ones I think are correct. A is your guess? Yeah. Does anybody else have a guess? It is C. I love this answer because, yes, you don't need to be in the emergency department. You can go and get worked up by your primary care provider. So when we think of galactaria, um, obviously one of the things, you can get a prolactinoma is one of the things we think about in the ER, and so we want to scan everybody's head. But what the question is trying to tell you is that her neurologic exam is normal, so she doesn't need this STAT, CT, or MRI. Um, if you order one from the emergency department, I'm not going to fault you. Nobody is. Um, but technically, she can get this workup from her primary care doctor. The only reason I threw this one in there is because, you know, the last week the ER has been absolutely crazy. And so I spent like one whole day in triage. That's how I ended up sick. Um, and I was like trying to like rifle through the 35 patients who are waiting. And one was this poor guy who was like 25 years old. And he just had left breast enlargement and he's like and he was there with his girlfriend and he's like you gotta do something about this and i'm like dude it's like a seven hour wait and i'm not gonna do anything about that today so i'm happy to send a urine test and some labs on you but i can just schedule for an outpatient follow-up and he was like oh that sounds good anyways it just made me give up just one of those days out in triage anyhow <laughs> All right, so galactaria, <clears throat> uh, a milky discharge from the nipple. It results from elevated prolactin levels. There's tons of things that can cause this, some of which we can do tests for and others which we cannot. So um, the, the list is very long for causes. Some of the things you can do in the emergency department is make sure they're not pregnant, do a physical exam, CT or an MRI if an intracranial mass is suspected.
All right. Question seven. Chino. Exactly. Yeah, they want you to do a public ultrasound. Um, delayed bleeding um, certainly could be retained products of conception. Um, could also be endometritis from um, an abortion, although two weeks out is a little bit less likely for um, infection. But yeah, ultrasound to rule out retained products. Question eight. Shannon, do you want to do? If there's no retained products, what about the possibility of perforation? The next step? Certainly, yeah. Oh, thank you, Dr. Lingdorf. That's a good point. So a lot of our female patients end up down the ultrasound and then plus or minus CT route. So this would be another case in which you may end up getting both um, imaging modalities before you come up with your answer. Uh, Shannon. Uh, Wow, she went through those quick. Yes, that is. <laughs> Holy Toledo. Yes, that's the right answer. So, um, uh, umbilical cord prolapse is where basically the cord is the presenting part. Um, so, if someone comes in an imminent, um, you know, in active labor, imminent delivery in the emergency department, and you look down there and you either see a cord coming out or you can feel a cord, a pulsatile cord, then stick your hand up there, elevate the presenting part, and call for an obstetrician, and don't move your hand because you're going to the operating room with them <laughs> until that baby comes out. So, <clears throat> yes, I've never actually seen this. Dr. Langdorf, have you? I think one of the interesting things they say you can do is actually infuse a bunch of uh, saline into the bladder, thereby blowing up the bladder and per, um, sort of halting the progress of the fetus into the birth canal. So you sort of push it back up. That was definitely something I had not considered. Um, anyways, but... I mean, what do you do if you're in a hospital that doesn't do all these stuff? That's, that's the challenge. I mean, you're stuck, how do you transfer? You can't transfer something. You can't go in the ambulance with your finger in the... <laughs> you go down... But, but then you have to leave your own ED. If you're in a single-covered ED, it's a nightmare. So I don't know what to do at that point. Yeah, they... Um, there's... I don't know what you do for the... For the um, full uh, umbilical cord prolapse, but sometimes you can get a partial prolapse where the cord actually gets pressed up, you know, like when the head's coming down, it's compressing it, and you can actually put your fingers into the vagina and try to maneuver the baby slightly to take the pressure or turn mom into a different position to try to take the pressure off of the cord. But again, I, I don't know what I would do if I got myself into the pickle that Dr. Langdorf was describing, where you were the only doc there. Um, I suppose at that point I'd be calling for any surgeon should be able to come down and help you with the C-section. It's a pretty general barbaric procedure. Certainly all kinds of general, general, general surgeons could do this in a pinch if they had to. And I have seen paramedics 
with prolapse cords in the field be the person holding the presenting part so it doesn't press on the cord during transport by EMS. So you'd have to check with your local EMS, but maybe the paramedic could be the holder in transport or the critical care nurse if you were transferring with the ACLS ambulance. That'd be a tough yeah, and you could try tocolytics to stop the labor, you know, do this infusion into the bladder and maybe buy yourself enough time to transfer down a road where it might be an OB, but... Question nine, who's... Shannon, do you have anybody next over there behind you? Cassie, go ahead. Okay. You want to take another stab at it? Be good guess. Um, so, see, magnesium is used to treat seizures with pre, uh, with eclampsia, and it's also a treatment for torsades. Although that's sort of a red herring in this question, and it causes hyporeflexia, hypoventilation, hypotension. Um, so everything kind of slows down. And so what you're looking for, um, if you have a patient with eclampsia and you're doing a mag infusion. Uh, you're checking them for their reflexes, and if the reflexes go away, you need to turn off your infusion because you're getting them toxic. So, um, so just a note on eclampsia. So it's basically preeclampsia plus seizures. Uh, preeclampsia is usually systolic greater than 140 or a diastolic greater than 90. Um, those are sort of moving targets at times, so don't get the numbers completely stuck in your head. Um, definitive treatment is delivery, but you can treat them with mag sulfate. Um, four to six grams IV over five to 15 minutes, and then a continuous infusion at one to three grams per hour. Um, signs of toxicity, like we talked about, respiratory depression, bradycardia, loss of uh, the deep tendon reflexes. If they do get toxic, you can give them, uh, in addition to stopping the infusion, you can give them calcium gluconate, and that sort of um, counteracts the magnesium that you were giving them. Um, second line agents for seizure control in eclamptic women would be dilantin or diazepam. Second line for blood pressure control is hydralazine, everybody's favorite, or labetalol. All right. And um, I think, Karen, do you want me to stop now, or you want me to keep doing a couple more? Uh, you can go a little bit longer. Okay. All right. Um, like 10 more minutes? Okay. <clears throat> Question 10. Follow up and see two scans rule out malignancy. 
Okay. So C would be your guess? Okay. Does anybody else have any other thoughts on this one? It is. It's B. Um, so this, what are they trying to get you to consider in this question? They're trying to get you to think about torsion. Exactly. Um, and so they tell you that she's not pregnant. So you're taking out of your ectopic mindset. And then they give you the pelvic ultrasound that shows a six centimeter right ovarian cyst. And what is significant about that? It's bigger than four. Yeah, someone even hit the number on the head. Right, all right. So ovaries that have large cysts, greater than four centimeters, they are more likely to torse. Um, so torsion usually happens in the setting of something is funky with the ovary, it's enlarged, it's hyperstimulated with, infertili or with fertility treatment. Um, the tube is enlarged, they have like a hydrocell pinks or something, um, or they have a big ovarian cyst. And that can cause intermittent torsion, which may be why she's pain-free now. And when you do your ultrasound studies, what are you going to order to try to figure out if the ovary is torsed? What, besides a normal ultrasound, what else do they have to look at? They have to look at flow, right? So um, Dr. Rudkin was so crafty when he made our ED common order set. So when you go to order your pelvic ultrasound, there are three choices there, a transabdominal, a transvaginal, and ovarian flow, study, uh, flow studies. And I would tell you that I have been burned so many times in this department that if you're sending a woman down to the ultrasound suite to get an ultrasound of something in her pelvic region, Order the flow studies because she's going to come, you're going to order the regular ultrasound and it's going to come back and it's going to say she has a five centimeter ovarian cyst. Now you're going to be like, hmm, well, is there flow to it? They didn't do the flow because she didn't order it. So don't fall into that trap. Just order it from the start um, just in case she has an ovarian cyst that you weren't expecting. Um, I have a question. Yeah. Obviously, if the flow, even if it shows it's normal and there's a cyst over four, it sounds like, because I was thinking follow up Okay, excellent question. So does normal flow on the ultrasound rule out torsion? No. Absolutely not. You can have um, torsion that obstructs venous flow, but you still have enough pressure to get the arterial flow through. So your flow ultrasound study is going to be totally normal, and you're still going to have a torsed <coughs> ovary. The only way to truly determine if the patient has torsion is to do a laparotomy to go in and actually look at it. So if you have a high enough index of suspicion, you need to get on the phone with OB and you need to have them come down and consult and see if they think the patient warrants going up to the operating room and looking. Um, testicular torsion studies, very good. If there's documented flow, it's pretty unlikely that the testicle is torsed, but ovarian studies, they can have normal flow to the ovaries and still have torsion. So um, if they have a cyst greater than four centimeters uh, and you're, con you're entertaining the idea of torsion, they've got, you know, sudden onset pain, uh, unilateral, get Gyne involved and let them make the call. I have sent up, um, this is just, it's such a tricky diagnosis for us when you have a, the normal flow studies in the emergency department, but you have this cyst, you just need to get Gyne involved because you don't want to take the chance of losing an ovary, especially these tend to be young women, so you're still talking about fertility um, potential for complications there, so I would get OB involved. Um, so, like we said, uh, ovarian or ad, they sometimes call adnexal torsion. It's usually from an ovary that's enlarged or an abnormal fallopian tube. Uh, those are some of the reasons there. It's, um, 
historically they give you a presentation of this uh, sudden onset unilateral pain um, often during or immediately after intercourse. They're finding out that more women have more of like an insidious um, onset. Uh, you know, over a couple of weeks, they'll have intermittent episodes that resolve spontaneously. So that should be alert you to the concern that she could have torsing and detorsing. Um, and definitive diagnosis is laparoscopy. I didn't know the association with intercourse. Yes, actually, um, so interestingly, Frequently, pain will start after intercourse, um, during or after intercourse, and um, they say it happens more common when the woman is on top. <laughs> I don't know what the study is, but I'm not sure. I'm not sure where that comes from, but anyhow. Yeah. So, so. It's interesting because you know, males, uh, their torsion history will have, often have a similar history of intermittent uh, episodes. Yes. It's rare to have them uh, force uh, at one time and that's it. So it's interesting that there's this parallel thing where there's repetitive or potentially repetitive episodes. Yeah, definitely. It's definitely you need to ask about previous episodes because um, that will come out in a lot of the history. So this is just um, an example of an enlarged ovary here that has a big dermoid cyst on it. Um, and you can see the there's very limited... Um, Doppler flow around that ovary, so this is an ovarian torsion on ultrasound. And that, I have a couple more questions, but we'll save them until next time. I know Dr. Burns is going to give you all sorts of good information on infections. I even have a lovely picture to go for you, yuck. Um, oh, this was kind of fun. So I was doing this, I was putting this uh, lecture together last night, and I was like, I wonder what the local rates of for STDs, because I don't know, the last couple of weeks, I feel like every woman I've seen has chlamydia, and I'm just like, I'm so jaded, I'm like, ah! Um, so anyways, I decided I, I would look into it, and actually, it's kind of interesting. So in Orange County, 260 cases of chlamydia per 100,000 in the population, so almost 8,000 cases, and like... 5,500 of those were in women as opposed to men. Uh, gonorrhea is 31 per 100,000 in Orange County, and those tend to be men more than women. And then syphilis is uh, much less likely, 3 per 100,000. And can anyone tell me which county in California has the highest rate of gonorrhea and syphilis? Kern County. That, who said that? that? They have the highest rate of chlamydia. <laughs> yes, good guess. Anybody else? You would think so. I, I live in Riverside. I'm sure that was not directed at me. All right. Anybody else? Anybody else? San Francisco. Yes. It's like, it's like 50 times the rate of any other county. Um, and I'm not even going to get into why that may or may not be. So, all right. Um, Okay, so sorry we ran out of time. I apologize for being a little bit late, guys. Uh, and we'll get your next lecture up here. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> what's up? So, okay, timeline with females. So like, I'm sorry, what's that? Timeline with females with